So we come to the last two verses, and we'll spend just a little time in these verses tonight. They are ultimately just the closing of the letter. Um, We'll spend a little bit of time just discussing these two little verses, and then from there we will basically do a recap and just kind of an overview. The main takeaways that we should uh, from our study through Revelation. What What is it that God intended for us, and then what have we learned and taken away from this time together? Last two verses of Revelation, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 22, we read, He who testifies these things, that's Jesus, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is a normal, what we call in the Bible, an epistolary conclusion. The closing of an epistle, the closing of a letter. And it's important to remember, Revelation is a letter. It's a letter with a prophetic function. It is a letter that has apocalyptic imagery in it and symbolism. But nevertheless, it is a letter from Christ to His churches. That's what it is. And I don't think, I think sometimes we just miss the fact. We get so caught up and enamored by the visions that we lose and forget that this is a letter to His church. And if it's a letter to His church, it was a letter to the 1st century church, the 5th century church, the 10th century church, the 15th century church, and the 21st century church. It is a letter to all of us, and therefore we are all to heed and learn from what this Word has taught us. And in these two verses, in these normal epistolary conclusions, these closing of the letters, we actually find something very significant in the closing of Revelation in these two verses. In these two verses, we see the greatest hope of the church, and we see the greatest need of the church. The greatest hope of the church is found in the words of the Lord Himself. He who testifies to these things says, Surely... I am coming soon. It is He who testifies. This is the word of the Lord. This is Christ's word. He is sealing up His Scripture. He's sealing up His word. Surely, I am coming soon. That is the greatest hope of the church. That's what we are looking for. And in case you think that, well, are are you sure that's the greatest hope? Look at John's response to it. Amen! Come, Lord Jesus! Exclamatory. Right? This is, this is, please, amen, let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. Make it so. For us in our, you know, comfortable society at times, and you may think, oh, it's not that, it's, trust me, we are cush compared to most of the world. I can assure you for the first century church in the midst of their persecution, there was no greater desire in the world than to see Christ come out of heaven to bring them home. I think one of the greatest kind of tools of the enemy is to blind us with comfort and not not to take any thought to the realities of Christ's return. And in doing so, We undermine what should be our greatest hope. This is the constant hope. 
This is what Paul says. I press forward to the upward prize, to the prize of the upward calling of Christ Jesus. For to, 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 to see Him and to be with Him. For Him to come back and take us home. That's our greatest hope. And so often, we don't live like that. We, we want Jesus, you know, you can come, but just let me live my life first. Let me see my grandkids. Let me watch them grow up. Let me do this. Let me do that. In other words, we want you to come on our time, not yours. Because you're peripheral to us. You're secondary. You're out there. It ought never to be that way. We should have the heart of John. Come, Lord Jesus. Please come. Sorry, get that term, Maranatha. Maranathots, Aramaic, means literally, O Lord, come. Come, Jesus. Please come. We long for you. We want to see you. And what we saw in Revelation is what has created such an urgency, such a a desire and a longing to see Him. And it's, have you not seen what it will be like when He comes? Have you not seen the glory that awaits His people, that awaits being face to face with the Lord forever in glory? That's what awaits us. How can you not be yearning for that? Longing for it? Hoping for it? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And surely He is coming soon. We ought to always be ready of the imminent reality of Christ's return. He spoke this nearly 2,000 years ago. And so we surely are upon the prefaces of, of, of His coming whenever He should please to do so. Are we ready? Is that same hope burning in our heart to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But not only do we see the greatest hope of the church, we see the greatest need of the church. And you find this statement in almost every closing sentence of every epistle in the New Testament, basically. Verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The greatest hope of the church is the return of Christ. And the greatest need of the church is the grace of Christ. Because it's His grace that will sustain us to the end. Grace is what got us to Christ and it is grace that will keep us for Him. What we need more than anything else, what you need more than anything else in this fallen world, in walking faithfully, in holding fast to Christ, in being steadfast even unto death, like we've seen exhorted to us over and over in Revelation. What you need to do that, what you need to endure, what you need to be faithful, what you need to not let go, what you need in order to cling to Christ through it all is grace. Start to finish, it's all grace. Talked about that this morning. It's all grace. Grace is what got us to Christ and grace is what will keep us for Him. So here in the closing letter of Revelation, it closes with two very important things. Your greatest hope, the return of Christ. And your greatest need, the grace of Christ. What we look to and what we live by. We look to Christ And we live by grace. This is the reality of what it is to be 
a wilderness pilgrim, an exile in this world, is to look to Christ and to live by His grace. And that really is the closing of the letter. That brings Revelation to a conclusion. So I want to spend the rest of our time this evening recapping. Recapping and asking a few things. First, after we recap, what was it about this letter? Why why did we get it in the first place? What was Christ's intention in giving it to His church? What makes Revelation such a grand finale to the symphony of Scripture? And then what are the main takeaways that Christ has given His church in Revelation? That's where we're going to go for the next bit of time that we have together. First, a, a, a recap. What was Revelation all about? What, what sparked Christ to give this to His people? Persecution was raging against Christians throughout the empire under the emperor Domitian, who in many ways was a a reincarnation of the policies and acts of that wicked emperor Nero. It had been nearly 60 years and plus since Christ had ascended. And as persecution pressed heavy upon the church... The expectation, that that longing expectation for Christ began to wane within the churches. You can see that as early in the 50s with the church at Thessalonica. It's all about. Some are saying he's already came. Some are saying he's not coming at all. That's what those two letters are all about. So here we are, 30, 40 years removed from that. You can imagine, especially as Christians are being persecuted, destroyed, sought out and killed, there are many who saying, He's never going to come. Not only that, as persecution grows, as the filth of the world begins to uh, permeate within and around the church, love begins to grow cold within the churches towards one another. church begins to lose its first love. A lot like the church at Ephesus. But as it seeks to lose, while some churches are losing their love towards others, other churches are starting to be wooed away in love to the world. Like the church at Thyatira. Being wooed by the promises of Rome of Babylon being lured away into loose living. In the midst of all of this, the persecuted and weakened church needed a word to encourage and awaken them back to faithfulness. And thus Jesus gave us a final and consummating revelation that would seal His inspired word to sanctify, sustain, and bless His church until His return. And that's what these 22 chapters have been for us. They are Christ's final revelation to a dull, loveless, waning, persecuted, frustrated church. 
in order for us to cast all that off and live in complete encouragement and faithfulness towards Him. That's what Revelation is. My friend, the church, what I have come to believe so firmly in preaching through this book is that the church has failed in not preaching this book over and over to its heart. Every Christian should be in Revelation daily nearly, reading this and preaching its encouragement to their heart. Fortunately, they haven't been taught how to do that. Oh, how effective the enemy has been in shrouding this book in mystery. So that so many in the church have just avoided it altogether. Or turned the book into something it was never intended to be. They have turned Jesus into Nostradamus. John into some crazy mystic. The book that was given by Jesus himself to bless and encourage his people to live faithfully in this world has been shrouded in everything but blessing. People are more afraid of the book than they are encouraged by it. That is not how it should be. We have failed by being afraid of this book because we have failed to understand the blessing in it. And I hope that during our time together through preaching through this, you've seen just what a blessing it is when you see it in light of the reason Christ gave it to us. What makes Revelation such a fitting finale to the symphony of Scripture? Anybody who's ever written a paper, wrote a book, preached a sermon, wrote a poem, gave a speech, knows the most important part of anything, any form of communication is how you end it. Because you could have said a whole lot of good things and absolutely wreck it at the end. Or you could have said a whole lot of hogwash and bring it full circle and close it with this wonderful moment of just like, wow, you brought, I brought, you brought it home. What makes Revelation such a fitting finale to the symphony of Scripture? Well, first, it does what a good finale does. It brings all the themes presented throughout the whole Bible together in a skillful, artistic, and masterful weaving together of all the major parts of Scripture into a single and final song. That's what a good symphony does and how it ends. It takes all of the major parts that were, that were good from every part at the beginning, throughout the middle of a symphony, and the finale brings all of those together in an artistic, masterful way and puts it together in a clear and concise manner that puts it all together in one final climactic song. That's what makes a great finale in a symphony. And that's what Revelation does better than anything. It takes all of Scripture. It takes all of the major themes and parts of Scripture and weaves them together in this closing letter. There are more Old Testament quotations and allusions and revelation than in the other 26 New Testament books combined. Why? 
Because Jesus is weaving the story all together. Like a good finale does. Tying it from Genesis all the way through to the exclamation point. Another important aspect of a conclusion, and, I, and I've made this mistake in writing and when I've graded papers before or preached sermons, I've made this mistake or I hear it and when others have preached, is one of the, the things that you don't want to do in a conclusion, in a finale, is you don't want to add new information. That's a bad way to conclude something. Is by now giving people new information that you haven't built on before. Because now you leave people with cliffhangers. Well, how did, we, how did we get to that? What I love about Revelation, contrary to popular opinion, is it doesn't add anything new. It makes clear what already is, what already has been. It takes all of the prophecies that had already been given in the Old Covenant. It takes all of the teachings given by Jesus and the apostles and it weaves it together in a clear, concise conclusion. It doesn't add new information. It gives us clarity over that which Christ has already revealed. But now in a singular focus of this is my plan for you, my church, for the earth, my plan of redemption. Lastly, the best finale is that which when it is played, there is no more music needed or desired because your heart has now received more than enough. There's no desire for an encore because your heart can't even take in all the beauty you just heard to begin with. That's what makes a grand finale. And that's why the Lord could close His Scripture with revelation. Because after hearing the glorious truths of this letter, there's no more music needed. There's no more Scripture needed. He has given His people everything we could want and more to live faithfully in this world. So anyone who says to you that they received new revelation and you got a new word from the Lord, you throw that out in an instant. Because when you have this kind of a finale, there's no more music needed. No more music desired. The Lord has given everything He wants for his people. So what should we take away from this book? And if you, in your notes there, many, none of them except for maybe one or two have actually revelation before, but that's because every one of these scriptures are coming out of revelation tonight. We're not going to be tracing around. We've did plenty of that through our study. Tonight we're just focusing on what has revelation given us. What are the four major takeaways that the Lord has given His church through revelation? Why He says from the outset, blessed are those who hear and read these words. What does He give us? First, Christ teaches His church of her true identity and place in this world. A couple different descriptions that we see the church referred to as First, the church is Christ's elect woman 
or bride. There's no chapter that makes this clearer than Revelation 12. Revelation 12, which is the central chapter of the book, we get the most beautiful picture of the story of redemption wrapped up together in that singular chapter. The history of redemption put forward in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, and the crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is this woman? This woman is faithful Israel. God's faithful woman. And who is she pregnant with? The Messiah. She's pregnant with the promises of the Messiah. And for 400 years, she feels the birth pains, longing for the promised one to come, the promised seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And what do we find waiting for this serpent to be born? We find the dragon, that enemy. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We see this picture in the birth narrative of Christ when Herod seeks to have all the boys killed. That is Satan working through him to try to eradicate and destroy this son. But he fails like he will all the time. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Who is the faithful woman kept out to the wilderness? It's still God's people. God's elect woman, his bride and her offspring. We see this in verses 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. For time and times and half a time. All of this, 42 months, three and a half years. That language is not some mystical, esoteric period ahead of us. That is reflecting the time frame when Elijah was pushed out in the wilderness and faced famine and persecution over the land. That's where that language comes from. It's the picture that during this entire experience from Christ being ascended into glory till He returns, this is our wilderness journey. And we are kept and preserved just like Elijah was at the brook of Kedron and fed by the ravens of the air. The Lord provides protection and nourishment to Elijah in the wilderness just like He did Israel in the wilderness, just like He does His church in the wilderness. We are His elect bride, His faithful woman. We know that this is referring to us as well because we see this language in Revelation 21 as well. Revelation 21, 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here we learn our identity as God's bride, His faithful woman, His true Israel. His covenantal people, His betrothed bride, whose home is in heaven, but whose mission is on earth. That's the church. We are not just His elect woman and bride. We are His sealed army. 
We saw this specifically in Revelation 7. This census that is laid out of 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. And we showed how this symbolism and these names of these tribes include so much more and are different than any other listing in Scripture. Why? Because it is including Gentiles. It is not just ethnic Israel. It is including all of God's faithful people. Twelve, the number of God's people. Times twelve, right? So twelve, Old Covenant. Twelve, New Covenant. Twelve times twelve is 144. The number of completion in Scripture is 1,000. 144,000. This is the number of the fullness of God's people. And we are told in Revelation 7, I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. But what's interesting, when you go through there, you will see that these, now some of them are not the sons of Israel. Namely, Manasseh and others. Benjamin and others that are there that are not the sons of Israel. These are the inclusion of the Gentiles. The list is out of order. It is symbolic. But notice they are sealed upon their foreheads. What are they sealed from? And what are they sealed by? Well, we, we talked about this. They are sealed from the enemy. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the sealing which comes upon and anoints God's people and protects them. That's why we can say greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. There was a reason why. Where was the anointing oil poured on God's people? Put it on your head. It's a picture of your mind being girded, protected, anointed. And that's where the Holy Spirit is pictured. Pouring over us, sealing us for Himself. And this tribal numbering, when we looked at the book of Numbers, we saw when this kind of listing, this kind of census was done, it was for battle. It was a preparation for battle. And so what you see in the first part of Revelation 7 is the church on earth being sealed for spiritual battle. But then we get this church of what it looks like in the glory to come. So what does it look like on earth? It looks like a militant army fighting a spiritual battle sealed by the Spirit. But what does it look like when this battle's over? Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Two visions, same group. The first is the vision of the church militant, we call it. Faithful, an army of the Lord on earth whose single point of protection is the fact that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then right in verse 9, we get a new picture. And it's no longer the church militant, it's the church triumphant. And we see a number which no man can number. Waving palm branches, which was the sign of a one battle. It's how the king would ride in after he destroyed an enemy army. It would be to waving palm branches. We see the church militant and the church triumphant. In other words, like we said this morning, we are in a spiritual war. 
but we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we are protected. We are protected. Our minds are protected. Our hearts are protected because we are sealed by the Spirit for battle. We also are a wilderness people. As we sing in the hymn, this place is not my home, I'm just passing through. There's a reason why Christ is crucified outside the city. There's a reason why Stephen is stoned outside the city. There's a reason why when Paul is stoned near to death, he's dragged outside the city. Because that's where we belong in this world. Outside the city. And I'm not talking about physical cities. I'm talking about the world. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. We are His wilderness people, which is why in Revelation 12, where are we nourished? We're nourished in the wilderness. We're nourished in the wilderness. Why? What was the goal of the wilderness for Israel? The goal of the wilderness was not first and foremost to get Israel out of Egypt. The wilderness was to get Egypt out of Israel. It was sanctification. And that's what the wilderness is for us. As we march towards the promised land of glory, the wilderness is the place where the Lord doesn't just get us out of Babylon. He gets Babylon out of us. As He faithfully purifies us as His wilderness people. But as His wilderness people, He daily rains manna for us. He daily provides quail. He daily provides water to sustain us through the wilderness. And day by day, there's a reason why the Scripture says His mercies are new every morning. Because every morning I need them. Every morning I need the sustenance. Or I won't survive the wilderness. It is to be totally and utterly dependent upon Him. That's what the Feast of Booths was all about. It's everything I have, every ounce of my survival is dependent on Him. And that's what it is to be a wilderness person. It's to realize that when you feel out of place in this world, it's because you are. You are dislocated here. Heaven has invaded your heart. And you long to be there. That is our promised land. The city built by God. Not only that, we, are, we have seen that we are God spiritually protected, but physically persecuted temple. We saw this imagery in the temple language of Revelation 11. We are God's temple, but notice what we receive about this temple language. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Notice, measure the people too? Why? This is symbolic. We are the, t- we are the temple. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for two months. Notice, same time frame again. This picture of three and a half years. This is the period of the inter-advental age. 
from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And we are God's sealed and protected temple. Measure the holy of holies. The internal portions are protected and blocked off. But the outer courts, which was given to the world, is left to be trampled. What is this talking about? It's talking about during this period that we live between the comings of Christ. The souls of Christ's people, those who are his own, are absolutely secure. There is nothing the enemy can do to touch your soul. But you will face tribulation. You will be battered and bruised by the world. But take heart. Because he who can destroy the soul has made you his own. That's why Jesus would say, take no worry to those who can kill the body, but not touch the soul. Worry about him who can throw body and soul into everlasting fire. But if you are in Christ, you need not worry that. Let the world trample you, mock upon you, and spit on you. Jesus said, in this world, you will have many tribulations. You will have it. I'm not going to take you from it. You will have them. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And He has protected your heart. He has made you His own. So no matter what they do to this flesh, no matter what man may do to the outward side, no matter how much they seek to trample the church of Christ, they can't win. Because our souls are sealed forever. We are His spiritually protected, but physically persecuted temple. Lastly, and out of the same chapter, we are His authorized, faithful, and prophetic witness to the world. And this this symbolic nature comes out of the, the two witnesses there. The two witnesses we looked at and we examined closely and saw how the two witnesses are a reflection, a symbolic representation of His church. Why two? Well, in the Bible... What is necessary in order for a witness to be declared as valid? Two or three witnesses. So it's an authoritative, it's a valid witness. Secondly, notice these witnesses are faithful. It says here that they are lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So, what is it that the witness of the church, what are we going and witnessing? The gospel. What is it that brings to bear the enemies of Christ? The gospel. What will men be doomed by if they do not receive it? The gospel. This is the power. It comes from the gospel. This is the witness we have to the world. And these men were faithful. But, and notice what it says here. Notice the beautiful of their faithfulness here. It says, verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. 
and they stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What's this a picture of? The church will continue to go forward proclaiming the gospel. And it will be absolutely perfect in doing so. Nothing will stop the church's mission into the world. Jesus said this gospel will go into all the nations and then the end will come. Notice, it isn't until their testimony was complete that the enemy was allowed to destroy them. And this is a picture of what will happen at the end of the age. As the church completes its mission to the world and the fullness of the bride of Christ is gathered, the Lord will send a great delusion. We've talked about this as the dragon is released to gather the nations against the church. And it will look as if he stomped it out. It will look as if the church has died. If it's been rooted out, the nations will celebrate because that which called it to righteousness, that which shone light on its iniquity will seem to have been done away with. It will seem as if all hope is gone. It will seem as if darkness has won. And right then and there, as the nations rejoice over what they believe to be the dead body of the church, Christ will bolt out of heaven. And He will gather His church to His own. And He will bring utter and complete destruction upon the wicked nations. And all will give glory to Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But none of that will happen until the church's mission is complete. So take heart, Christian. The gospel wins. It wins. It doesn't lose. And what the Lord is doing at the very end is precisely what He did to inaugurate His kingdom when it looked as if the world won. And then He rose in glory. And that's precisely what will happen with His church at the end. It will look as if it stopped that. But as the world seeks to proclaim victory, Christ will bolt out and declare to them, you are defeated. My church is a faithful, and I call it prophetic. Don't be weirded out by that word. Prophetic doesn't mean foretelling. The ability to look ahead and tell you how many famines you're going to have or you know, this person's going to get elected in 17 years and yada, yada, yada. That's not, when it comes to biblical prophecy, that kind of foreseeing is actually a very small portion of prophetic nature. Most of the prophets, and the primary purpose of the prophet was not to look ahead into the future and, and see what's going to happen. The primary purpose of the prophets were to call people back to the Word of God. That's what it is to be a prophetic witness. It is to say, thus says the Lord. Behold what the Lord has said and come back to this. This is where there is life. This is where there is hope. This is where there is salvation. Don't, don't go. Don't turn from the right or the left. Come to the word. That's the role of prof prophecy. That's the role of what the prophets did. And that's what the church's function is in the world. Thus says the Lord. Salvation in no other name. Turn neither to the left or the right, but turn to Christ and Christ alone. That is our prophetic witness to the world. 
So this is who we are in the church. This is our identity. This is our place. We are his elect woman, his bride. We are his sealed army. We are his wilderness people. We are his spiritually protected but physically persecuted temple. And we are his authorized, faithful, and prophetic witness to this world. Then, Christ not only instructs us on this, but he also instructs us on who our true enemies are in this world. So often, we make enemies with those who aren't our enemies. We war against flesh and blood instead of realizing that our true battle is against spiritual, spiritual things, principalities and powers. And that's what Revelation does. Revelation pulls the veil off of this great cosmic conflict that you're a part of. This great spiritual battle that you belong to. And he reveals to us who our true great enemies are. First is that great enemy, the dragon. Who is Satan. Satan is the invisible spiritual ruler of this fallen age. The prince of the powers of the air as he is called. The the little g, God of this age as Paul refers to him as. And over this little age that he's a part of like Pharaoh in Egypt. It is through this age that the people of God must pass through in order to get to the promised land. And though he is actively at work, this great dragon is under the sovereignty of Christ and was bound by Christ at the cross from doing what? From deceiving the nations. Not by being active in the world, but from deceiving the nations. Deceiving the nations from what? Gathering against the church and stomping it out. That's what Jesus said in the gospel. Unless the strong man, in order for the strong man's house to be plundered, the strong man must first be bound. The mission of the church is to go plunder the nations for the sheep of Christ and to gather them to himself. And in order for that to happen, the, the prince of the powers of the air has been bound by Christ to keep the nations from coming together in unified effort like he will be allowed to do at the end in order that the mission of the church can be perfect. This dragon is at work roaming around like a roaring lion see, looking to see who he can devour. He despises and hates humanity. Because unlike him and his rebellion, the Lord has actually offered redemption to his people, to to humanity. And there is no redemption available for the enemy. And so he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy all that he can. But he will not touch the church of Christ. He may do so physically. The Lord in his sovereignty may even allow him to, to take our lives. But he can never touch our souls. He is the accuser of heaven who has been thrown down from that place. Why? Because his power of accusation no longer exists for the people of God. Why? Because there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But this dragon tries to work through emissaries and establishes a counterfeit trinity. He, trying to mimic the Father, establishes 
two other followers, the beast and the false prophet. The beast is the face of the political, governmental system within the world. The beast has been functioning, the Antichrist spirit has been functioning since Christ went to glory, which is why John says there have been many Antichrists, plural. And there will be a culminating one at the end. The beast is the corrupted form of what God established for good. Always seeking to wage war on the people of God because they are the only force that consistently refuses to bow to it. It is the Nebuchadnezzars of the world who seek to build an image for themselves that others would worship and bow for safety and security. But God's people won't do it, which is why the beast hates them. There's a reason why what was the curse of Nebuchadnezzar? God turns him to a beast. Because when you fail to act in obedience with the image of God, you will always just be a beast. And the systems of this world are beastly systems. When they try to rebel against the God who created and established them, they will always turn out beastly. A.K.A. legislating the murder of babies. A.K.A. condoning absolute utter wickedness like the mutilation of children. But that's just the next step. If you can tear them apart in the womb, why can't you tear them apart when they're seven? Do you not understand? It's just the next step. Why not castrate them when they're eight if you can cut their head off in the womb and rip them apart? It's just the next step. And nobody wants to admit it. But that's wickedness. It's beastly. Because that's what happens when you rebel against the Word of God. And that's the system. And there will be a culminating system at the end that seeks to demand our ultimate allegiance and to do away with anything that would cause us to follow Christ. And that's what it is to take the mark of the beast. It's not some chip. It's not some tattoo. It's not some implant. The mark of the beast, to take the mark of the beast, is to give your ultimate allegiance to the world. It's triple six. It's the number of man over, over, and over. It's a counterfeit trinity. It's a place where there is no rest. Six, six, six. What what happened on the seventh day? God rested. You never get to rest if you go after this system. It's the number of man. It's to go after man and give your allegiance to man rather than God. That's what the mark of the beast is. You can't accidentally take it. You willfully do it because you go after man rather than God. And then there's the false prophet who uses coercion and deception to turn people away from Christ with the goal that they will be lulled into obedience to the beastly system. This is a a system that, that uses coercion. Oh, this is, this is how you love your neighbor if you do this. They get to determine what is love, what is good, what is right. 
And through coercion and deception, they pull people away into thinking that what they're doing is right when what they're doing is evil. And this is the goal of this false prophet, this worldly system that seeks to lure us away in order to deify the state and the worldly system, to deify man. And it does it in a way that people think they are actually doing good. They are serving God. This is what makes it so deceptive. And this deception has been marked throughout the entire age and it will grow and culminate at the end. And then lastly is the great harlot of Babylon. This is just the world. This is the worldly system with its economics and culture, its commerce, all of these things. And the goal of the harlot of Babylon is not the persecution of God's people. That's what the beast and false prophet do. The goal of Babylon the harlot is to seduce God's people. Not hurt her, seduce her. To lure their hearts towards mammon, towards vain pleasures, towards fleeting joys. It wants us to take her as our lover and abandon him. That's what the world is doing. It's trying to lure you, lure you away that you'll come and love us. Come and lay with us. I'll give you pleasure. I'll give you joy. It's all fleeting and vain. But the goal is to seduce you away from your beloved. That's what Babylon is. That's why she's called a harlot. That's why John says, we must come out of her. There's a reason why why the Lord, when He called Peter and them, It was right after they had just received the biggest catch of their life. Don't think that was a mistake. Think about how much money they passed up that day. They could have fed their families for years probably. But they got to come out of her. They got to get away from the seduction. Why do you think he calls Levi out of the tax booth? You got to come out of her. This is what's seducing you. This is what's corrupting you. You got to come out of her. You got to come out of the world. And come into Christ. The world tries to seduce you away. So these are your enemies. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet. And they are all actively at work today within this, within this worldly system of Babylon. That seeks to lure us away from God. And all of them are working together. And they will work together in culmination at the end when the Lord finally allows so at the completion of His church's mission. But these are our enemies. And all of the things that we despise that go against God are reflections of one of these things actively at work and often a culmination of all of them. Not only does Christ instruct us of our enemies in this world that we know who we are truly fighting against. Because that's important to know. If you're in a spiritual battle, it's pretty good, it's pretty, it's pretty good idea to know who you are actually fighting against. But not only that, Christ comforts His church to encourage her heart in a dark world. In chapter 1, Jesus comforts us by giving us a greater vision of Himself. Just read it just a little bit real quickly here. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned 
to see the voice that was speaking to me and turning I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The, most, the first thing out the gate that a persecuted church, that a church in a dark world needs is a clear vision of Christ. And Christ makes it very clear that He is reigning in glory. That He has all power and authority. That He has the keys to death and Hades. In other words, no one's dying, church, apart from me letting it happen. I'm sovereign over this. I am in control. I am reigning and ruling. I am the first and the last. And I'm alive. Amen. When you find yourself in a dark place, you need a greater vision of Christ. And Revelation 1 is where you turn. Secondly, He comforts us by informing us of His presence in, watchful care over, and provision for His churches. That's what the letters to the churches are all about. I love it. The letters to the seven churches... See churches that do good things and they do bad things. And that's what we are. We are churches in this world throughout the culmination of the age that do some things right and there's times we act like knuckleheads and do things wrong. And in the midst of it, Christ is constantly coming to His church saying, I'm in your midst. I see you. I will provide for you. This is what you need to do better. This is where you can grow. This is how you can be faithful. And behold, here is the reward that awaits you. Here is what I have in store for you. He is constantly there. And the church needs to hear that. It needs to hear that Christ is right with us in our midst. No matter what we endure. He is our light. He is our strength. He is our hope. And He provides and watches for us. Thirdly, He comforts us by establishing His heavenly reign, His complete sovereignty, and utter worthiness to bring to pass all of God's cosmic plan of redemption, retribution, and restoration because of His perfect sacrificial work for us. This is what chapters 4 and 5 is all about. As we are brought into the throne room of heaven, and we see the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Father, upon the throne in all of His glory, And we see in His right hand a scroll, which is God's cosmic plan of redemption, restoration, and retribution. And a cry goes out, who is worthy to open it? And it is silent. And John weeps. Because if no one can open this, God's plan of redemption can't happen. God's plan of restoration can't happen. But behold, the angel turns his eyes. It says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But rather than seeing a massive lion, he sees a lamb as slain. And behold, the heavenly song declares, worthy is the lamb who is slain and is able to undo the scroll of God. In other words, 
He alone, Jesus alone, because of what He did in His first coming, is able to put into plan all of God's cosmic plan of redeeming His people, bringing retribution against evil, and restoring His creation for good and forever. Jesus can do that. And He's actively doing it right now. And this is what encourages God's people. Don't look to what is seen. Look to what is true. And that is Christ is reigning. And He is putting into place and into plan God's cosmic plan of redemption and restoration. And He will be perfect in bringing it unto completion. Fourthly, He comforts us by detailing the safety and security of deceased believers in His presence, praying for the day He returns to bring about their resurrection and glory. One of the things about Revelation is it actually gives us a window into heaven and it shows us all of our brothers and sisters that have gone to be in glory, precisely what they're doing. They are protected around the throne of God, declaring and praying for the day that He will return so that they can receive their resurrected bodies. But they are safe and secure. What, a, what the greatest hope in the world is to know that if you have a loved one who is in Christ, they are safe and secure in the presence of God right now. Right now. Amen. And if you should go before he returns, you will go and be safe and secure in the presence of God. Praying, oh Lord, go, go that they might know you and that we might receive our resurrected bodies to be perfectly glorified and complete. He comforts us by ensuring that we are completely sealed by His Spirit and secured for glory. We don't need to fear no matter what's happening to us in this world. If you're in Christ, you're as good. You're as as good as saved if you're in Christ. It is sure and steadfast that He who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion. It is guaranteed you can take heart and rejoice no matter what you see in the world then my hope in Christ can never be shaken or taken from me he comforts us by demonstrating how he already brings judgments in this world against evil as both a means of justice and a call to repentance those first four seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments are happening right now famines pestilence wars rumors of wars it's everywhere and if you don't think it is just go turn on the news Sedan's falling apart right now. Ukraine's falling apart right now. Why? Because all of this is happening. But these trumpet judgments are not only God's repayment against the world that's in rebellion, but it's also a means of grace whereby He says, Wake up! This world is not enough. You need me. So every time there's an earthquake, a collision, something terrible that happens, a war, it is a trumpet from heaven saying, wake up world. You got to find Christ. You got to know Christ because he's coming. It is the birth pains, Paul says in Romans 8, saying he's coming. Do you know him? So it is not only a means of judgment, but it is a means of mercy in preparing the world. He tells us in Revelation of His second coming, which lets us know evil doesn't get the last word. Thank you, Jesus. The Lamb triumphs. He comforts us by demonstrating His ultimate justice and triumph over all depravity, demonic forces, and death in final judgment. He will be 
flawless in his victory. And never again will there be anything left to harm his people in glory. When he creates the new heavens and new earth, he will do so with such perfection that there will never be a fear of it being lost again. And lastly, he comforts us with a picture of the glorious new creation that every person who's been united to him by faith will dwell with him and forever. If you ever need to doubt what it will be, read Revelation 21 and 22 and know that wherever your mind went, wherever your heart went, it will be 10 billion times better. It will be 10 billion times better because words can only do so much to put forth the glory of what will be in that day. And then finally, and we'll close with this, Christ exhorts His church on how to conquer while in the world. How should we live? What is it that we should do in order to maintain faithfulness in this world, in this present evil age? How do we live as salt and light for Christ, as His elect bride, as His spiritual warriors, as His wilderness people, as His temple? This is how we do it. First, hold fast. Revelation 2.25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Don't let go of Christ. That's the call. You can let go of everything else in this life. Don't let go of him. Hold fast to him. Hold fast to your faith. Don't let it go. No matter how much the world would seek to cause you to fumble, hold fast to Christ. And do it knowing that He holds fast to you. Secondly, be faithful. Revelation 12, 11, And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. Do not be lured away by the adulteresses of the world. Stay faithful to your heavenly husband. Stay faithful to the King of glory. Stay faithful. He has gone off to finish the battle. Stay faithful to receive the glorious consummation of the marriage when He comes. Stay faithful. Third, don't be afraid. Revelation 2, 9, 11, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now this is real. This is happening to this church. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The church there was about to come under immense persecution more again. Jesus says, don't you fear. Don't you be afraid. Because they can't hurt you eternally. They can't hurt you ultimately. They can't destroy you finally. Because you belong to me. My friend, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how crazy things may seem, no matter how clouded the world around you may get, you never have any reason to fear in Christ. For He did not give you the spirit of fear, timidity, 
The spirit of power. You have him in you. Because of that, you need not be afraid. Fourthly, worship him constantly. You want to know how you keep from idolatry? Don't stop worshiping him. And that's the constant theme of Revelation. Revelation 8, 3 and 4, another angel came and stood to the altars with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. These are the prayers of the saints. This is our prayers that are before God night and day, rising up as a sweet aroma. Revelation 14 talks about how we, those coming out of the tribulation, that's now, right? We are the worshipers, perpetual worshipers of the Lamb. This world will so seek to lure you away and, and, and your, eye, your heart is an idol-making factory. You so we, we are a worshiping people, but it's so easy in our fallen state to worship all the wrong things. So worship Him. And do it without ceasing. Day and night, worship Him. Every day, let every breath out of your lungs be one as unto the glory of the Lord. Worship Him non-stop. When Daniel decided to be a rebel and be like, listen, I'm going to open the window in prayer, pray. What does the text say? He went and opened the window to pray as he always did. He wasn't just doing something for show. He was a perpetual worshiper. And who said, you're not going to stop it now. How will you keep from bowing to Nebuchadnezzar? You do it by perpetual worship. You do it as you always did. Worship Him constantly. Stay awake. Revelation 3, 2-3 Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know, not know at what hour I will come against you. Revelation 22, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And as he closed, he who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Christ's call on the Olivet Discourse, his call in Revelation is clear. Be awake. Be ready. Be alert. Be a watchman on the wall. Stay awake. Don't let the world lull you to sleep. Don't let complacency in your spiritual life lull you to sleep like Peter, James, and John in the garden. Don't be lulled to sleep when Christ says, Wait up with me. Are you ready? Stay awake. Be prepared. Gird yourself in holiness so that when the Son of Man returns to earth, He does find faith. Stay awake. For we know not when He comes. Be ready. Be alert. Be sober-minded. And lastly, preach the Gospel. We are His faithful witnesses to the world. We are the ones who go out, as Revelation 22 says, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Here is the invitation, the gospel invitation. You who are thirsty, you who are weary, you who are dying, you who are burdened, come to Jesus. He's your only hope. He's the only way. He's the only door. He's the only life. This is the call of revelation to to God's wilderness people. Hold fast. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. So contrary to what so many people walk away from this book is a fear. And the book is specifically written so that you don't fear. Don't be afraid. Worship Him constantly. Stay awake. Preach the gospel. Because the Lamb will triumph. That is revelation. May we live in light of those exhortations. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this glorious crescendo that You gave Your people to close Your canon of Scripture. May we live in light of the glorious truths that we've seen it over the past months together. May we apply these truths May we be those who hold fast. Lord, strengthen our hands that we might great, more greater cling to You. Lord, cause us to be faithful even unto death. Cause us to be, uh, to be fearless and bold for You. Remove all fear from Your people. Lord, make us perpetual worshipers for You who are never lulled away or distracted or carried off by counterfeits, but are only in love with the true substance, which is Christ. Lord, keep your people awake. Do not let us be lulled into conformity by the world. Do not let us get complacent in our spiritual life, but let us live constantly with the reality of your imminent return upon our hearts that we might be alert, ready, awake, faithful soldiers. Faithful soldiers, do not sleep on watch lest the enemy creep in from the back. But they are awake and they are ready and they are alert. God, make your people alert and ready. And Lord, put your word upon your people's heart and put your word in your people's mouths and and quicken your people's feet that they may go unto the nations being the feet of who bring good news to all. That your gospel may go forth and conquer. That it may go forth and plunder the nations. That you may gather your innumerable multitude through your people. And Lord, let us live every day with our greatest hope, your return, and our greatest need, your grace, ever in our prayers. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for the knowledge that you win. And that when we can't understand the sorrows of today, where we don't understand maybe where we're at in the story, that we can take heart because we always know how the story will end. Let us live in light of that every day single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.